Good morning, Sunday morning, everybody. This is a very special episode. With me, as always, we have Adam. Hello. We've got Lyle. What's up? We've got Zach. I'm back for this week. And we have the man, the myth himself, Raleigh Bowman. Hey, everyone. Good to have you with us, Raleigh. This is episode 13 of the Sunday morning podcast, and we're going to be talking to Raleigh about his campaign, about him himself about pretty much anything. So let's get it rolling. All right. So do we know where we're going first with the questions? I think Zach wanted to kick it off. Yeah, but uh, we, we should do look like a little get to know you. Yeah, we yeah. should like, lead into right. it. Yeah, yeah. All right, Rally, how's it going? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing all right. Doing all right. Yeah. I'm yeah. over the moon that you're even here. I'm fantastic. <laughs> yeah this is uh this has been a big topic for us the last three weeks as uh you and your your campaign staff have probably learned uh i i think we hope we're all uh i think we all hope that you're fans of the podcast but yeah no i mean i would definitely say so so it's actually it's kind of funny because you know we we got the email about coming on the podcast and then my team did some research and we came across the Israeli Bowman reel. <laughs> From there, I was just like, I have to listen to these guys. And, you know, I kind of fell in love with the podcast and that's why I'm here. I really enjoyed it. It was really comical, um, especially. <laughs> yeah, that's a good description. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad you took it that way. Yeah, we were. Yeah. I, I feel like. There were two ways this could have gone, and I'm glad yeah. we're uh, glad we <laughs> took we're this down direction. the path that involves less legal action. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, funny. it's really awesome though. Um, yeah, I listened to the one follow the follow up to it, and I was like, this turned into another Raleigh Bowman podcast. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could we couldn't get Raleigh off the mind. That was uh, that was us for a couple weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, just a refresher for the viewers who kind of missed the Rally Bowman saga. Saga. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. So I think it was episode 10, right? Yeah, it was when we yep. had Danica on. Yeah. yeah. Danica was a guest we had on, and she is an activist and organizer in the Chicago sphere. Uh, she she turned us on to Rally's existence or rather non-existence and from there we we just took it we've investigated and we've determined that he's real as you can hear so that's, well, we that's didn't sort so of much a... determine it as that <laughs> raleigh made sure that we knew he sent us exactly the evidence we asked for yeah we mentioned something about needing proof of your existence to hold a newspaper up and <laughs> My shock when we <laughs> received it. Oh my god! Uh, a proof of life video. Yeah. So, and I'm so glad you had such a good sense of humor about it. You want to tell the listeners a bit about yourself, Raleigh? Just sort yeah. of give them an introduction. Yeah. Um, so, just a little bit about me. Um, my, again, my name is Raleigh Bowman. I'm running in Illinois' fifth district against corporate Quigley, um, as I like to call him. I grew up in North Carolina, which I know we're gonna probably talk a little bit more about. But um, yeah, um, I mean, I've been an advocate activist all my life. 
worked in the private sector, which is also going to be another topic. But um, ultimately, <laughs> I'm just, you know, my whole life I've been fighting for people and that's why I'm running for Congress. And I'm just really glad to be here with you guys to discuss my platform and why I'm running. Corporate, uh, corporate right. Quigley is a good name. That's <laughs> we, good. I really like that. About yeah. Quigley. Good old Mike. Good old Mike. You want to get the first question, Zach? Uh, yeah. Okay. So this wasn't on the list, but I actually um, was hoping to talk about. You just caught the Marianne Williamson endorsement, <laughs> which is super interesting. I love Marianne. I think we all love Marianne here on the pod. Orb mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, orb mother. She was honestly completely unironically my second choice in 2020. So how did that how did that come to happen? So it, well it's kind of funny. So a lot of people know Marianne obviously um, who follow me mm -hmm. and who support Marianne but also support my policies and what I stand for. So a lot of people actually suggested that Marianne endorse me. And to give a little bit more context, you know, she's endorsed some of my friends. Um Sherman, mm -hmm. Azami's running out in California, Christine's running in Florida. And I know these people. Um, I communicate with them throughout the beginning of our campaign. And, you know, once a few people had actually recommended me and she looked into it, it kind of just all fell into place. Um, went through the interview process with her guy and he loved what we stood for. And obviously he wants Quigley out. And <laughs> from, <laughs> from there, we kind of just, you know, she was like, yeah, I want to endorse this guy. I mean, this is kind of what we need, especially out in the Midwest, because we don't have any progressives running. And, <laughs> and you know, also, yep. one of the other things was, well, we have Chewy Garcia um, in Illinois, and then we have Marie Newman. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have anybody else, at least not for this cycle, going up against corporate incumbents. So she was definitely like really excited about it. And we talked. And she, she was like, yeah, like this, this is my guy. So <laughs> I'm just jealous you guys talked. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Can, can, can you get us a connection? Tell it, tell her, you know, some guys. Yeah. Um, uh. <laughs> no, there is something to be, there's something to be said for what you were talking about progressives in the Midwest, because, uh, with the exception of Corey Bush, who is uh she's Maya and Lyle's representative, we're St. Louis guys, but she she's about one of the only progressives that has come up recently in the Midwest. It's pretty largely dominated by those corporate types. Mm -hmm. If not outright Republicans. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, for yeah. sure. And I think that's what she was really excited about. I mean, just imagine having Cory Bush, Marie Newman, Chewy Garcia, and then me, um, if elected, obviously. But imagine having those four, just a powerhouse right there in the Midwest. Mm, and th yeah, there's absolutely. other things that are in the works. I don't know if I'm even allowed to speak on it, but um, things like contracts <laughs> for progressives saying that we're going to form a voting block and we're not going to waver on that. So mm, Awesome. Cool. Okay. And now I think we're gonna we're gonna get into some questions about who you are in terms of who you are online one of the things we noticed while trying to figure out more about you is that you have an incredibly clean online profile like absurdly clean it's impressive it's it's frankly impressive uh of course to the point where we weren't entirely convinced you you were a real person how did you keep that so clean did, was there any you know process that you went through, especially running for Congress? Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I find it funny um, <laughs> almost because 
it's 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 I've heard this before. It's like, how did you keep such like a clean uh, profile online? Uh, but the mm-hmm. truth is, you know, it, with social media, given the climate of everything through 2016 when Trump got elected and there on after, I, I kind of took a step back from social media. Um, I'm not very active on Facebook. In fact, I maybe make one post a year. You know, the Twitter, I was like really not heavily involved in Twitter until the campaign. And it was like one of those things that we had to have. Uh, So I created it in November of last year and it kind of just took off. And, you know, outside of that, outside of that, I just, I I don't know. I I guess I'm just not one of those people who have gone crazy on social media and have a really huge online presence. I mean, now it's starting to build, but I mean, overall, no, I I guess just a low profile. (laughs) God, I wish I was healthy enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah, God, I wish that were me. (laughs) I think we're all uh, a little bit too online. Yeah, yeah. So, Twitter. Yep. that's what was so so baffling about like your existence frankly was that you have this huge twitter following but there was no trace of you anywhere else yeah so <laughs> so <laughs> I, well when in november when I, one of the things that a lot of people um will come to know about me is i'm super outspoken on twitter well at least i was in the beginning mm-hmm. and then you know, you have to kind of reel it in and dial it back, especially running for Congress. Mm-hmm. But I've been very outspoken yeah. about certain things that nobody else will speak up. And I'm not afraid to call corporate and centrist Democrats out for what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then it just kind of got the attention of, you know, some like really big names, um, like other congressional candidates running. You know, I befriended people like John Cooper. I don't know if anybody knows who that is, but he worked for Obama. And the fact that if elected, one of the other things that kind of helped our campaign take off or well, our Twitter presence was literally the fact that I would be the first openly gay male, if elected, to go on and represent the state of Illinois. I, I would be the first. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so that was that's a, awesome. That was a huge thing. Um, the response from that back in January, when I finally told everybody like, hey, this is who I am, like, I have no reason to hide it it just kind of took off from there. So that's kind of how we've grown. I mean, just being honest with people and you know, just interacting and just being blunt. That actually kind of answered uh, another question we had. And, and we were going to say, how do you like to use social media you know, for your campaign? But you, you hit that pretty well, actually. Just to dive into that just a little bit deeper. So I didn't want to create, you know, unfortunately, we have to have it. I didn't want to create Facebook and all the other social media platforms. Sure. Just, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I just don't genuinely like Facebook. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. No, I hear you. <laughs> I hate it, but I love arguing with, with the boomers on there. So <laughs> I uh, will not be getting rid of it. <laughs> well, that was one of the things, you know, it, as soon as we created it, it's like the toxicity um, immediately followed. It was like, how dare you go against another Democrat? Who do you think you are? And And then it was like, oh, your socialist agenda. And it's like, you know, you get that on Twitter. I mean, obviously you do. But on Facebook, it's just like this toxic culture that has been bred over the past four years with the Trump administration. And I just wanted to stay away from Mm -hmm. it completely. But, you know, here we are. We had to create it. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At least on Twitter, you've got, you know, you've got like your shooters on Facebook. There's there's no countering it. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody's right. funny either on Facebook. It's right. uh, yeah. Yeah. Good luck with the Facebook. <laughs> it's, 
That that kind of brings up another question we had, which is, you know, what's it like running a campaign like yours in COVID times? Do you find that you have to rely a whole lot more on social media? Uh, you know, usually, you know, especially with pro- progressive candidates, there's a lot of door knocking and meeting face to face. And that's a lot harder to do in the current climate. Yeah. So, <laughs> Here's the thing with with canvassing and everything, especially here in Illinois, you know, if we were out in like Wyoming or one of the Dakotas, it would be much easier. But I mean, we had an explosion of COVID cases and death rates Mm -hmm. here in Illinois, Mm -hmm. um, especially in Chicago. And that's where predominantly my district Mm -hmm. starts and where the majority of the population is. So that's something that was put on the back burner. um, And you know, a lot of people won't say this, but we can get into it later. But a lot of people said that defund the police was the reason that we lost in 2020 uh, a lot of House seats. That's that's just not true. It was that we weren't out. We followed the guidelines. We followed the protocols. I mean, Democrat. I'm speaking for Democrats, but I mean, they followed the CDC guidance. And unfortunately, they weren't out there. Uh, Republicans were out there. They were meeting with people, and that's kind of why mm-hmm. they gained some House seats. Um, but no, it, as far as like navigating it all, I mean, this summer we have uh, some really big plans. We're actually probably going to be at Pride in the Park, um, which at, it normally hosts hundreds of thousands of people. But we're hoping to be there on June 27th and June 28th. Um, but also, you know, we have a huge team of volunteers, people who have just been dying and waiting to go and like canvas and knock on doors and speak with people. Um, I can tell you the majority of people here in Illinois fifth won't quickly gone. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think the problem is, and we can talk about this more later on, but the problem is, is that with a lot of progressive candidates, um, in the past, you know, I can't really speak for them, but there wasn't a huge community presence and we don't want to drop the ball there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, to answer your question, it's been predominantly social media based. I mean, we've been out during some of the protests, obviously with George Floyd, Adam Toledo, um, and some of the other things that DSA does. But other than that, no, it's been predominantly just social media. I mean, because we didn't want to put other people's lives at risk, let alone mine or our teams. Yeah. And even, uh, you know, I worked for uh, a Rose Caucus candidate back right as this all started. And I feel like even with Democrats, even if you were comfortable with sending your your campaign volunteers out to knock on doors, the the Democrat base are not people who want to open the doors for canvassers right now, especially the yeah. progressive mm-hmm. base. So <laughs> it's yeah. yeah, I mean, no, that's oh, sure. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we talked a little bit there, you know, about where your 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 district is. It's largely in Chicago and it branches out a little bit. Um and we've mentioned it a couple times, but you're running against Mike Quigley. Yeah. Um so one one of the questions we wanted to ask you was like what kind of separates you from other progressives who've run against Quigley in the past and lost? What 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 do you think is going to push you forwards that that didn't push them? Wow. Um, so <laughs> we've actually looked into obviously their campaigns, and we kind of try to identify where these progressives went wrong. Not saying that you know they weren't great candidates, but at the same time, like obviously somewhere along the lines, the not saying that the ball was dropped, but definitely there wasn't a huge community presence or something. So mm-hmm. ironically enough, I knew who Brian Burns was. Um, Samina, I did not know 
until we started looking into like actually running against Quigley. Um, one of the things that I can say is, you know, we're starting to rack up endorsements that sets us aside. You know, campaign fundraising is a little off. I can say that, but I mean, as of now, I mean, based off of where we're at, we're going to outraise Brian Burns by tenfold easily. So, you know, I think that the support's there. I think that, you know, the national exposure that we're starting to get, and I mean, from like big names, like I said earlier, um, not just like John Cooper, but like Marielle Trump, she's, she actually supports the campaign and she supports me. You know, the support is there, um, but I think that it's also, it goes back to like being really involved in the community. I mean, we have plans to be out there canvassing all summer. We have plans to meet with people. We're going to be doing events. A lot of people don't like doing events and I can speak for other candidates. It just, because it doesn't bring in money. Um, it, it's costly. It doesn't bring in donations. So a lot of candidates try to stay away from like live events and speaking events because it just really doesn't do very well for no name candidates. And not saying that like I'm no name, but you know, just newcomers. So I think ultimately it's just getting involved with the community. I think that with the amount of support that we have, especially from Marianne Williamson, and then um, I'm part of a national progressive alliance group with 44 other candidates who are backing me. I, I think that being in solidarity with these other candidates and the movement itself is really going to push us forward. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, awesome. that's how the slate of, you know, DSA endorsed candidates sort of carried a more concrete victory over, you know, your standard moderate Dems in 2020, even though seats were lost. I believe almost every DSA sponsored and endorsed campaign won their elections so it was all except for one i think yeah all except for one, one so single one as someone who's worked on those types of campaigns that's definitely probably one of the most important issues yeah in terms of organizing and uh electoral strength and community yeah so i'm willing to bet that takes some of the financial burden off as well because if you know you can do those events that you're talking about if you've got um, you know, national money coming in, if you've got money coming in from supporters of the other progressives in that alliance, if you've got money coming in from people who'd like Marianne, if, you know, if you've got that inflow of cash, you can afford to do the expensive events and the drives and this and that, the community building. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing. Um, so Marianne is actually really great with fundraising. <laughs> so there's 20 of us right now that she's endorsed for, um, the, I think, two elections this year. And then the rest are, you know, in the general are the primaries for 2022. Um, the amount of fundraising that she's able to garner and just from her platform is phenomenal. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's something that we have coming in and we definitely look at that when we're trying to plan out events and stuff because we definitely want to be involved in the community. Uh, but we also have to be mindful of the fact that we cannot spend too much money at one time. So with the national support mm -hmm. and then like the local support, I think that this summer and this fall, I mean, we're just really going to knock it out of the park. Yeah. She lures people in with those bird pictures and then she really does. Sooner or later, you start uh <laughs> You start donating to uh, the campaign she endorses. So I love those so God, much. I love the Marianne Bird pictures. <laughs> She's just like like my whole timeline's like this bad thing's happening, this bad thing's happening, this person died, and then Marianne's just like, "Hey, y'all, check out this cool bird I found." 
it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. It's so true. Uh, she's she's phenomenal. Um, you know, I'm on a call with her. Or actually, we're all on a Zoom meeting every month with Marianne, and it's it's phenomenal. She's definitely she's one of my favorite people. That's so cool. So we actually hit one of the question, one of the other questions we were going to ask. We were going to ask um, about balancing the need to fundraise with the, uh, you know, the need to meet constituents and form policy and stuff. But it sounds like, you know, you're having to do a little bit less of that balancing with the sort of unique, you know, ways you've been able to fundraise. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you know, here's the it's tricky with fundraising, especially like during the climate um, that we're all in. Um, luckily things are getting a lot better. So we're looking forward to like getting out there and canvassing. And a lot of people probably don't know this, but, um, a lot of fundraising actually call, uh, comes from call time and call time basically is just reaching out to all the donors, um, within your district and asking them to donate to your campaign and telling them why you're the better fit. Um, so actually that's starting on June 1st, we have myself and a team of four volunteers who are going to start doing that. So hopefully, I mean, we're projected to start raising three to $5,000 a week. So we'll see. Um, we're hopeful. <laughs> yeah. You were just talking about sort of some of the intricacies of, you know, working with progressives and being a progressive in the past. Uh, sometimes you, you'll see a lot of candidates get elected, you know, based on progressive policies, based on policies similar to the ones that uh, you're running on. And then, move to the center after having spent some time in Congress, you know, how, how do you think you can, I guess, reassure your constituents that you're going to keep fighting for the things that you're fighting for right now? So I guess I have to start first by saying I, I, I can't, I, I mean, I can't just say I'm going to do something and then just expect them to follow me blindly. Um, the problem with that is, is that, you know, like I said, I don't want to get too much in depth with the whole force the vote thing. Cause I mean, there are procedural, uh, things that have to take place within Congress itself before we can bring things to the floor. But here's what mm -hmm. I will say. I'm not willing to compromise or move to the, um, the center, um, on certain things like Medicare for all climate action, a living wage, uh, criminal justice reform. I mean, I'm just, that's not who I am as a person. Um, if you ask me if I would have withheld my vote for, for Pelosi, it, it gets complicated in the fact that I wouldn't, I wouldn't rather have a Republican as the house speaker blocking every bit of legislation that we put forth versus having Pelosi. It's a very tricky situation. Um, but here's, here's my commitment and here's what I can promise people. I'm not that I'm not that person. You know, I am the everyday working class person. Uh, that's who I am. I mean, that's how I grew up. I mean, I watch my, my family struggle. I watched my dad struggle. You know, the government for years, you know, turned its back on my family. Um, so I, I, I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to struggle. Um, I know what it's like to be without insurance and homeless. Uh, I, I mean, I grew up that way. Um, so one of the, the biggest things for me is you, I'm not compromising when it comes to things as basic as human rights. I, I believe everybody has the right to housing and healthcare and food and to be uplifted out of poverty. So th these are just things that I won't compromise on. 
Um, you have my word. I know that doesn't seem like a lot in like the recent events that have transpired, but the constituents here have my word. And, you know, I, I've gone through so many interviews. I can say that, you know, with the exact same question. And it's like, well, I, I can promise you all day long, but you just have to trust. Mm -hmm. You just have to trust and believe that this is who I am as a person. I, I think that's a great answer. Um, and, and I think honestly, like one of the main things is just being upfront and saying like, like, like you said, you know, uh, if, if it came to withholding your vote for Pelosi, you know, it would have been tricky. And I think just letting people know up front, like, okay, that's where I stand on that. I think that's a really good strategy and a good thing to do. And it's good to know that about your representation. Um, you also brought up in there, you know, some of the, uh, kind of more personal roots you have with some of your policy stances. You, you, you talk a lot, you know, just there and also on your website about policies being personal to you. Is there one or two of those that you might want to talk about? You know, maybe some of those ones that you wouldn't be willing to compromise on? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So like one, um, which is a big topic, especially now, especially like with COVID and everything is Medicare for all. I, I, I fundamentally mm -hmm. believe at my core that everybody deserves health care. Um, it should not be tied to employment. It shouldn't be just tied to how much money you have. Growing up, and the reason that Medicare for All is personal to me, so that's one that I'll pick. Growing up, you know, my dad owned his own business. He was doing really great. He hurt himself. I, I mean, I was a child, a baby. He hurt himself and required several back surgeries. Lost his business, lost his insurance, and lost everything he ever had. And I, I watched my dad struggle for the rest of his life. Um, it, it, my mom, too. And we can talk a little bit about that. But my, my dad, I, I mean, to me, my dad was everything. Like I, I, a lot of people would be like, well, you know, parents are everything. No, I mean, my dad was like everything to me, uh, especially like growing up in the situation that we did. And uh, I was in foster care um, because of you know, some of my mother's unhealthy coping, uh, coping mechanisms. And my, my dad was always like my hero, the guy who was always there for me and who got me out of the situations that I shouldn't have never been in. And, you know, growing up, I watched him struggle. And as his back pain got worse because he didn't have health care, he, he resorted to unhealthy coping mechanisms and he struggled his entire life. Uh, with addiction and drugs. And I, it, it just, you know, really, if he would have just had the help and the care that he needed, none of these things would have ever happened. And unfortunately, two years and two weeks ago, so basically two years ago, my father passed away unexpectedly at 55. Uh, I believe at my core, if my dad had access to healthcare and the things that he needed, that he would still be here today. Um, so that's why I'm not willing to compromise because it, I mean, my situation, it may sound um, taboo or unfamiliar, but it, it's all too common within our society. I mean, People, millions of people are struggling with this every single day. I mean, we have millions of people uninsured and under underinsured. We have to be better. I mean, we have to do more. Nobody should lose their child. I mean, nobody should lose their parent at the age of 27, 
26, excuse me. <laughs> but nobody yeah. should have to bury mm. their parent because they don't have access to healthcare. I mean, it's as simple as that for me. Um, but it, the same thing applies with my mother. My, my mother, you know, she struggles with mental illness. She always has. And she never had the care that she needed. After my father lost his business, their insurance, his, I mean, they ended up getting divorced. Um, and then she resulted to the exact same things. It was, it was almost, it was like a guarantee that she was going to go down the same path. And mm -hmm. it took her years and years. I mean, it wasn't until three or four years ago, she finally got Medicare provided by the state to get the treatment and the care that she needed. And finally, thankfully, She's doing better. Um, I mean, she's still really sick, but the thing is, if she had the opportunity to get the care that she needed 15, 20 years ago, she wouldn't be where she is now. Yeah. yeah. Something something you touched on there uh, was this, the addiction crisis in America. And uh, we noticed that one of your policies on your website was to end the war on drugs. Could you elaborate more on what that means to you? Yeah. So here's, here's the thing with the war on drugs. Um, so one of my policy positions is decriminalizing marijuana completely on the federal level. I think that we should expunge records. I think that we need to stop going after people who sell, distribute, or partake in marijuana. Um, I mean, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. The war on drugs is a failure. It, it, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work in in my point of view, it's a direct attack on low-income communities and communities of color. We need programs like mental health services. We need to like invest in our communities. We need to give back and figure out why people are resorting to drugs in the first place. So if, for me, like ending the war on drugs means we stop going after people for possession and distribution and invest in your communities and figure out why that community has a high presence of drugs or distribution or, you know, overdoses, whatever the case may be. We just, we shouldn't be going after people who live in low income communities and communities of color versus tackling the actual problem at hand. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, overdoses and stuff in there. So I'm assuming um, you're talking about, um, you know, opioids and other drugs as well as uh, marijuana. Yeah. That, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> so let me clarify. So there's never been a recorded history case of uh, marijuana overdose. Uh, so that should be legalized federally. I 100 percent support that. Uh, but as far as everything else, I mean, we have an opioid, opioid crisis in America. And if we don't do something to actually tackle like mental health and addiction and provide our communities with resources to get the help they need to get clean, nothing's going to change. If history has taught us anything, I mean, the war on drugs is decades long and it, and it hasn't proven to be successful. In fact, it's only increased um, death rates, um, people incarcerated, uh, people living in poverty because we don't invest into the mm -hmm. people that we should be investing in. Yeah. I, I, I hundred percent. Yep. I, I think I can speak for all of us here today. Um, us meeting the host, maybe I'm mistaken, but, uh, we're all in the Midwest and we've been hit particularly hard by the opioid crisis. And, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. I feel like 
the moderate Democrat position on that is that drug use is a personal failure, you know, a failure on a personal level level. Um, and, uh, I think a lot of us realize that drug use and drug addiction and substance abuse is way more common, you know, it, it resulted from the war on drugs and painkillers. So you, it's, it's great to hear a congressional candidate, uh, talk so candidly about the issues there. People don't realize, you know, wh whether or not you get hurt or whatever the case may be, that's how it had, that's how it started for my father, um, with his back injury, you know, he got addicted mm -hmm. to painkillers. And then from there it resulted in other substance abuses. And, um, I mean, we're talking heroin, we're talking street drugs. I mean, it's, we're talking mm -hmm. whatever he could get mm -hmm. his hands on to be very candid with you. Um, yeah. And all of us know someone, someone who's gone down that path and yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. I, I yeah. don't think any of us could say that they're criminals as the war on drugs would at a high school class of like, I think it was 418 people and our fourth, uh, we just had our fourth person from that class die of an overdose about six months ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I just graduated college, so I'm hardly four years removed from high school for, you know, one person a year. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, that's absolutely heartbreaking. And that's the type of things that we need to be tackling and literally investing in. I mean, we shouldn't be mm -hmm. losing people um, to, to addiction simply because, you know, they're just overlooked. It, it, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not that people are choosing this. I mean, we have to look deeper into mental health services and to literally care for, you know, our most vulnerable. I, I don't think it's radical to like mm -hmm. go out into your communities and figure out what's actually going on and whether it's high schools, low income communities, or just communities where there's like a heavy um, population of overdoses. I mean, we just, we have to be doing more. Yeah. And we need 100%, policy. 100 agree. We need policy to stop determining or deciding that these people are criminals and not, yeah. you know, people yeah. suffering from a disease. All right. Thank you guys for listening so far. Uh, we've really been enjoying this episode. Just uh, chiming in real quick to give you guys the mid break and let you know, uh, make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's Google, Apple, Spotify, whatever that is. Uh, follow us on social media and follow Raleigh. We are at Sunday underscore pod on Twitter, uh, patreon.com slash Sunday morning pod. If you want to pay us money and our discord, YouTube, Twitch, and all that stuff is linked on our website at Sunday morning pod.com. Uh, you can find Raleigh's stuff at Raleigh Bowman for Congress.com. And his Twitter is at Raleigh Bowman. Uh, and then finally, uh, if you if you guys could, we really appreciate reviews on both iTunes and Podchaser. You can find links to those on the website as well. Uh, we've been getting a bunch more iTunes reviews coming in, and it's really awesome to hear that you guys love or hate us, I guess. All feedback is good feedback. Uh, and then let people know about the pod. We're going to let you guys hear from Anchor real quick, and then we're getting back into the interview. While we're on the topic of criminalization and crime, um, your website mentions that you plan to abolish cash bail for misdemeanors, which that's that's a great starting point for police reform and criminal justice reform. 
but why would you limit that just to misdemeanors? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a great question. So the thing with misdemeanors is typically they're nonviolent crimes. Um, when you're statistically looking at misdemeanors, we're looking at drug possession. Um, we're looking at um, petty theft. We're, we're just literally looking at nonviolent um, charges. When we start getting mm. into you know, felonies and, you know, aggravated assaults and domestic abuse and things like that. We have to be very careful. Um, and, and I say this, uh, I, I say this without the intent of saying that I don't want to uh, abolish the cash bail system like in entirely. I think that we need to look at what the charges are. I think we need to assess whether or not we should be releasing a domestic abuser back on the street within four hours after being arrested. I, I think we have to look at situations where somebody was killed um, or it, it just ultimately depends. It, it's a great question. It's something that we're still looking into. It's a tough topic. I can tell you that it's a really tough topic when it comes to eliminating bail. Um, our team from day one and my policy position has been that nobody should be sitting in jail because they're too poor to afford bail. That's my policy position. However, when it comes to, like, like I said, domestic abuse and things like that, we have to be very careful about releasing people straight back onto the street because we don't want somebody to be murdered as a result of not keeping them in jail. Um, it's a, again, it's something that we're still looking into. Um, statistically, we, we just we don't know how many people actually go back out and commit even more heinous crimes. Um, but my policy position as of now is for all misdemeanors um, with felonies, you know, it gets complicated also because people say, well, what about white collar crimes like tax fraud and um, wire fraud and things like that? Um, Again, our policy position is, you, you know, there shouldn't be a cash bail system because it's corrupt. It's intertwined with the prison um, industrial complex, which is a corrupt system mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. meant to keep low income communities and communities of color in prison, in jail for profit. And I, I think that ultimately that should be abolished as a whole. But to, an to answer your question bluntly, I, I don't think the cash bail system should exist but I'll have to get back to you. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. sounds totally, totally reasonable to me. Just, just, just to clarify, you know, for the listeners and everything, it sounds kind of like the system of cash bail as a whole is something you disagree with. This is kind of just an easy starting out point because the rest is a little more complicated and we have to kind of look a little deeper at how we'd expand that beyond misdemeanors. But it's definitely something it sounds like to me that that you've considered a lot and might still be on the table. Yes. So 100% agree. That's a very uh, good way of putting it because that's exactly where we're at. Uh, we're still looking into everything, unfortunately, because of the system that we're in or the society that we're in. It, nobody has done an in-depth like survey or brought up the statistics in regards to like criminal justice reform, because it, it seems to be that corporate Democrats mm -hmm. and Republicans, of course, don't want to reform our criminal justice system. I mean, they like it the way it is because they're funded by the prison industrial complex. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, until we know more, I, I really can't speak so much on like the nonviolent crime, I mean, on the violent crimes, excuse me, 
But yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think as a whole, the cash bail system should be abolished. You, um, in that last answer, you, you kind of gave a little peek at, at one of the problems at getting that change, which is a lot of the other candidates and other elected politicians are very, very well funded by corporations and other organizations that have a vested interest in suppressing that knowledge uh, and preventing that research from happening. Uh, it's It's been made pretty clear on your website that you refuse to work with those corporations uh, and, and you refuse their, their support or their donations. Why is that? And how does that affect your campaign? So to the effect point, um, it, it affects the campaign drastically in terms of funding. Um, so for example, like Quigley from corporations has already raised, you know, he's amassed uh, $250,000 in the first quarter. But I mean, it's just his corporate donors um, it's people who want to keep things um, the same, the status quo. I mean, I mean, that's just what it is. I mean, that's just how it is with corporate centrist Democrats nationwide. The funny thing is, is that we've actually been reached out to, you know, from security investment um, hedge funds and corporations saying like, hey, can we work with you? Is, is this something that you're willing or open to discussing? Absolutely not. From the beginning, um, because the the thing for this campaign and for me is I don't want to be funded by corporations. I don't want to be funded by Wall Street. I want this to be a 100% people-funded, people-powered movement for real change. If, if I take money from corporations, then I'm no better than Quigley. I mean, Quigley puts the needs of corporations and special interest groups ahead of the needs of Illinois' 5th District constituents. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, it, it, mm-hmm. That's just how it is nationwide. So, you know, it affects the campaign financially, but morally, I, I'm proud um, of what we're doing. I mean, I mean, we're taking a stand. Um, again, we've uh, got all this national support. We're racking in endorsements. And, you know, th- the funding will come from there. I, I would rather do that than take corporations who want me to legislate for them versus the people of this country. That's awesome. It's really, really cool that you're doing that. Would you, um, a lot of politicians in the past couple years, the last two election cycles really have brought up the idea of public campaign financing. Uh, you know, uh, that was a really, really popular one in Bernie Sanders first run. What kind of campaign finance reforms would you support and would publicly funding campaigns be one of those, you know, kind of getting that entire burden of the fundraising out of the way so that people can focus on policy? So for me personally, um, I want corporations completely out of politics. Um, I I want to limit the amount of contributions made by PACs. I want to get corporations out of politics. I want complete reform. Um, Citizens United is one of the worst decisions this country has ever made. Um, and I, that's one of the things that we want to do, overturn Citizens United, because um, we, we need campaign finance reform. At this point, we have politicians who work for Wall Street. They don't work for their constituents. And if something doesn't change, that's just going to be how it is for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Unfortunately, we don't have that amount of time. I mean, our society is on the verge of collapse. I mean, we have a climate that's dying. We have people being poisoned by water systems because there's lead in our water. 
it, something has to change. So I am totally in support of completely overhauling campaign finance. Um, I, I think corporations should not get a say-so when it comes to who gets elected and who doesn't, because I, you should have to earn your constituents' vote. You should have to earn it. It shouldn't be bought by who who's the biggest donor. Um, mm-hmm. And then secondly, I think that there should be a public funding option uh, to level the p- uh, playing field. Everybody deserves to have an equal amount to work with. So the people get to decide. Again, not corporations or Wall Street or the biggest donors. The people within your district, within your state, get to decide who represents them. So... I hope that answered your question. No, no, I think that I think that yeah. sounds like a really good plan. Yeah, want to apologize for uh, having stepped away for a second. No, no, I can't no. believe you've done this, Zach. Yeah, you've ruined, <laughs> ruined the whole ruined thing. It, yeah, ruined the whole thing. Yeah, gotta trash the whole episode now. Um, sorry, um, <sighs> and uh, not not to detract from the seriousness of the conversation, but this has been in my head for like ten minutes now. Ever since Alex said it, IL five. Kind of sounds like aisle five, like at a grocery store. And I'm, <laughs> thanks, I'm for inter- with this. thanks for yeah. interrupting our podcast to talk about that shit. <laughs> yeah, no. Now, I, do not take my marketing advice. Do not take my advertising advice at all. But a kind of fun campaign slogan would be like clean up in aisle five. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, that's, a, that's okay. actually not that. That's actually pretty good. I was expecting you yeah. to say something really yeah, Lyle, stupid. Lyle wasn't having it. <laughs> Raleigh to aisle five. Got you. Got you. <laughs> yeah. I, I was absolutely expecting you to come in here and say just the dumbest thing I've heard in my life, but that was not bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> See, we're. We're getting it together this episode. <laughs> Are we? We're keeping it together, yeah. Um, okay. But We're trying know, our hardest. <laughs> so North Carolina, um, Chicago. How'd you end up in Chicago? Well, I've worked out of Chicago um, for years. Um, so I work for an airline. <laughs> I don't know if I should say which airline or not. Just edit that out. Um, okay. So no, for years I've worked um, for the airlines. So I've been based out of Chicago for, you know, years. Um, and I've gotten to know Chicago. I mean, it's my home and I've gotten to know like the community. And surprisingly enough, it you know, I have friends and family up here. So I, it's not like I, I'm a stranger to the community. I mean, I've been up here for, you know, off and on for the past decade. Um, I will say this, you know, living here has really shown me the needs and the want for change. Uh, we we have so many things that people seem to overlook. I mean, we have tent cities under bridges. I mean, we have so many things mm-hmm. going on like that, the homeless crisis, um, homelessness crisis and the poverty, I mean, the poverty within this district is just absolutely insane. Like most people will Google Illinois fifth and they're like, Oh, it's a wealthy, wealthy community. Like, I mean, $85,000 a year is the median like income, but that's only taken into account like Chicago. Once you start moving away outside of Chicago, you start getting down to $23,000 a year. And then the women um, versus men make $12,300 less. I mean, it, there's so many things within this community that people don't realize um, that they just, they have to change. 
Um, so yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, it's just the community to me has become a part of who I am. It's become intertwined with who I am in my everyday life. And th- these are things that I've always been fighting for. So the, the community itself is my home. This is my home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I say I have dual residency. I mean, like I said, I've been in and out for, de- for a decade now. And I just, mm-hmm. I, I love the people here. You mentioned, uh, this was another question that we were actually really excited to ask. You mentioned uh, both just now and on your website, you mentioned that a lot of your work has been in the private sector and you go into some detail on your website. You know, that's not necessarily bad. You know, Cori Bush was a nurse before she got elected. She all her life was working in the private sector, but that can sometimes make uh, progressives and people on the left a little bit skeptical. I guess, uh, how would you address that uh, sort of apprehension if necessary? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we get asked that all the time. I think a lot of people get um, the private sector uh, confused. They're they're like, what does that mean? What does that entail? Uh, the private sector is just businesses, corporations, Amazon, Walmart, um, airlines, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. But I guess, you know, people tend to forget, like the founding fathers uh, did not intend for Congress to be represented by lawyers and doctors and uh, the smartest people, um, rocket scientists. It, it, my whole point is it was supposed to represent the people within the district. That's who you send to Congress. So when I, when I say that I have like worked in the private sector my entire life, I mean, it, it basically means like I, I know what it's like to watch people struggle. Um, I, I've managed multiple corporations, you know, regardless. I'm trying to think of how to put it without sounding like private sector-ish. Um, I've managed multiple corporations where, you know, you work with everyday people, um, whether it be a district manager for Chipotle, um, whether it be a manager for Walmart, whether it be um, human resources for Verizon. I've worked with everyday people and I've come to understand and know the needs and the wants of the people. Um, so it, it's as simple as that. I think people tend to forget um, that, you know, we need working class individuals to go to Congress to speak on our behalf. We need people who mm-hmm. actually represent us, who reflect us. I mean, representation matters. Um, I, I kind of spoke about it earlier. I mean, I don't want somebody to elect me just because I'm a gay male. But at the same time, like we need more representation in Congress who are going to fight for our rights. Um, just simple things like that. Um, so, you know, to kind of combat like people who are apprehensive, I, I would just say like, I, I am you, this campaign is for you. Um, I, I think that that's how we would combat it. I mean, we, we've actually gotten questions like that before. Like, so what makes you qualified? Well, I, I believe because I represent the people I, I don't represent corporate interests or like, I don't have the highest education. I, I mean, I mean, I went to school. Um, I, I studied criminal justice, business administration, but a lot of people say, well, how does it make you qualified? Well, maybe it doesn't, but at the same time, everything else that I've done does. So. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I, I like I like what you said. Um, the question, how does it make you qualified um, that we worded our question specifically to not be? How does it make you qualified? Because the question, how does it make you qualified is just so reductive and so boring. 
our friend uh our friend andy who was on episode six he ran for uh mayor of huntsville alabama and uh you know a few of us and a few of our friends were on his campaign and he worked at a, a dental uh i think they made dentures i can't remember what it is but he we calls call it, it the tooth factory he calls it the tooth factory <laughs> yeah, he worked at the tooth factory you know he he is an everyday joe and he hated getting the question why are you qualified because he, you know it's the exact same thing you said he is you he is the people of huntsville you are the people of il5 yeah yeah no mm. i absolutely agree and i i hate the question too i i mean i absolutely do and i we we stay away from it. I mean, even when we're asked, we just, we, we basically pose everything the exact same way that we just talked to you. Um, our, Mm -hmm. we just explained our stance on the matter. It's as simple as we know what it's like. I mean, we've lived it, we've experienced it. Um, and that's who we need in Congress. So yeah, I, I don't like the question itself. And like I said in the beginning, I mean, the founding fathers didn't intend for Congress to work like that. It was supposed to be representative of the people. Well, speaking of trains, um, something you mentioned on your platform is uh, wanting to establish a national rail system. Um, How would this directly benefit IL-5? So I I think ultimately, I mean, when we look at the statistics, and I'm probably going to mess these up, but we have over 76 million people who travel um, on the Metra alone, which is part of our rail system here um, in Illinois and Chicago. And then roughly, if I'm not mistaken, 230 plus million yearly that travel on uh, CTA. So like just rail system alone, that's not including um, like bus transit or anything like that. Is CTA Chicago Transit Authority or, uh, Authority or something yes. like that? Or Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That is just wanted correct. to make sure. <laughs> thanks for thanks for interrupting our esteemed guest, Zach. Uh, I don't know anything about transport. We don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, everybody knows it. I mean, we can talk about it. it Illinois is losing residents at a rapid rate. Um, people are moving out of Chicago. They're moving out of the city, um, out of the state entirely. 
um, or losing a congressional district. Um, I don't I don't know if you guys saw that, but mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's tough. Um, that's going to be a tough one. So, I mean, we don't really even know how the districts will align at that point. But uh, going back to the rail system, I mean, we need to be bringing communities together. Um, we need to bring more revenue into our city um, and throughout Illinois' 5th District um, to pay for programs like Housing for All. Uh, I talked about it earlier. I mean, we have a housing crisis. We could be using some of that revenue to pay for housing. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could be doing here in Chicago and Illinois' 5th District, along with the other districts. Uh, So, I mean, this is just something we need. Um, There's a lot of people who can't necessarily travel on planes, and there's not a lot of people who can just drive from California or uh, Southwest Florida to Chicago to come and visit. So I, I think that it would revitalize not only our communities and uplift our low income communities by taking some of that revenue and revitalizing them. But I think that it's a way to bring people together and to bring people back into Illinois. I, I think that it would be something that's super beneficial, not only to Illinois' fifth, but the entire state. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said so far. I do think there's one very important piece of the puzzle we haven't talked about, uh, which is that trains are just super cool, and I want more of them around. That's <laughs> goddamn right. I love trains. They are They're cool. <laughs> train systems are sick. They're I went so to good. New York for the I went to New York for the first time, and that's like the first city with you know public transit that I've been to. It was so cool. It's Did so I cool. understand how it worked? Absolutely not. <laughs> Sometimes I just go go like sit underneath the the bridge on Ashland, and I just mm-hmm. look at the train go by, and I say, "God, that's so cool! I love a good train." That's the that's the appeal that we should be taking with people who are a little bit apprehensive about national transit. That's true. Okay, so you're saying think like, about how cool it would be. Forgo yeah. all of the discussions about how beneficial <laughs> it is for low income communities and all that shit, and just be like, "Hey." You guys ever think about that trains are really cool? There's a market there. You ever, you ever hear one go whoosh? I think that would get some people there. <laughs> yeah. Think think about it, Raleigh. That's marketing advice. Yeah. <laughs> you got <laughs> it. <laughs> we gave you one good one. You got to take the bad one, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we're going we're gonna to put trains cool as shit on our website tonight. Promise. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Big old banner right yes. at the top. Just uh, remove your entire <laughs> section about infrastructure and and trains and transport and just trains are cool. Font size 70. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, they, they are, though. You know, like one of the first trips I ever took as a, a, a kid was, well, the first one was like, I think, on a Greyhound bus. And that was horrifying. <laughs> like <laughs> That was horrifying as a kid. Um, oh, it's, it's horrifying as an adult. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's awful. It's truly awful. I had I have taken the 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 Greyhound from Chicago to St. Louis a couple times and it's never been a good experience. Yeah, see, I see. <laughs> I, I need I need to get out there more apparently and travel by bus because I, I haven't done it since that one experience. So I don't know what it's like, but I heard it was like all these new amenities uh-huh. and like it was relaxing, so <laughs> If you've rode a Greyhound bus, you don't have to worry about what's in the COVID vaccine. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's that's why we need high speed rail, though, is so that no one has to take a Greyhound bus ever again. Agreed. I mean, I absolutely never had a bad experience on a train. Amtrak is great. I do love Amtrak very much. 
All right. So we've got we've got about two more questions on your uh, LGBT policies that we wanted to finish up with. And just as a side note, as a member of the community, I really liked I really liked them. Uh, most Democrats and honestly, a lot of progressives will kind of just give the the bylines and just, you know, copy and paste the expected, you know, Oh, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do stuff that's good for trans people and, you know, not really go into detail. And I was appreciative that you did. Yeah. So of of those stances on your website and, you know, just uh, expanding access to prep was one, making sure trans people are covered under Medicare for all was another. Are there any in particular that you want to talk about or that are interesting or important to you? Yeah. So, yeah, let's let's. Let, Let's talk a little bit more about youth in general and then like kind of dive into like where I stand with the LGBTQ uh, plus community when in in regards to youth. So the, the problem is, is that it, within our society, two thirds of all youth within America will experience alcohol by the time that they reach 18. I mean, it's just it's a given fact. It is what it is. But when we dive down deeper um, in, into those statistics and we start looking at LGBTQ uh, plus youth, we start seeing trends that we we don't want to see. We see, we see people struggling with addiction. Um, we see people not only struggling with alcohol addiction, but they start resorting to uh, street drugs. They start resorting to prostitution. I, I hate to say it, but I mean, we have to talk about it. We see so many things um, that, that unfortunately affect a population of the country that's often forgotten. Um, the LGBTQ youth and LGBTQ adults um, are often thought of, well, you know, we've made progress. Uh, there's marriage equality. So, you know, we can kind of move past it. That's just simply not true. So going back to kind of what I was saying is, so while we see two thirds of youth, you know, who partake in or will experience alcohol, like they go on to be just fine. But when you start diving into those statistics, we start seeing the others who literally drop out of high school. They don't go to college. Um, they end up homeless. They end up on the streets. We, we start seeing, you know, overdoses. We start seeing HIV infections. We start seeing like an increased STI infections within communities. There has to be more than just saying, okay, well, here's marriage equality, you know, great. Everybody's equal under the law. It's not that simple because we, we seem to forget that, you know, with the LGBTQ youth, there's a stigma around just being gay or just being who you are in general. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times people are kicked out of their homes. They're shamed. Uh, they don't know how or who to turn to. We have to do more. So one of the things that I would like to do is I, I would like to fund programs for at-risk transgender and LGBTQ or LGBT um, youth um, not only that, I think we need to provide more mental health services. Um, one of the things that you mm -hmm. talked about earlier is that I, I don't think it's a very controversial uh, topic, but I don't think that it's radical uh, to provide gender reassignment surgery and make sure that it's covered by the federal government because nobody should have to choose between being who they are and killing themselves. Like it, 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 it's just, we've seen mm -hmm. what happens. People will commit suicide simply because they're too scared or they can't get the help or the treatment that they need to be just simply who they are, to be free. These things aren't radical. Um, and then kind of going back to what I was saying about like youth, we, we have to expand 
our community outreach programs. We have to invest in these communities. And it's not just about LGBTQ+, but it's about just investing in our communities as a whole. Um, But we definitely have to protect our LGBTQ uh, youth. Um, And then outside of that, we need shelters. We, We need safe havens. For the people who are kicked out of their homes, we we need to be protecting our most vulnerable. I mean, society as a whole, we're supposed to literally protect those without a voice. We're supposed to protect those who are um, who have vulnerabilities. We're supposed to protect people who need it. Who need it? Unfortunately. It's just, it's not what's been done. It's not what's been done for the past 15, 20 years. And I mean, if you go back even farther, I mean, LGBTQ plus individuals, they didn't belong anywhere in society. Mm -hmm. Um, So no, I mean, we have to be doing more. Um, We have to be reaching out and educating families, um, regardless if it's, um, you know, somebody going through gender reassignment, um, struggling with like who they are, um, being coming out as gay, um, regardless of the case, we need to be educating not only families, but also offering resources to help families cope in accepting, not cope, but accepting who their child is. I mean, there's just so many things that we could be doing that we're not doing. And it's just, it's sad. It's, it's heartbreaking. Sorry, guys. I kind of just went on and on and on. No, no, it's good. Okay. Yeah. Um, I so before we actually talk about it, uh, Lyle, just cut this part out. I was hoping to talk about something a little bit more taboo, just because I noticed that you talked about it when you answered the question about uh, your LGBTQ platform. Okay. Uh, and if it's not something you want to talk about, that's completely fine. But you did bring up uh, sex work. Uh, many of the friends of the pod are involved with sex work currently, and. With New York City legalizing or not legalizing, but refusing to prosecute sex work now, I'm wondering what your stance on uh, the criminalization of sex work is. So here's the thing. Sex work is work. Um, mm-hmm. I just I just want to clarify two things here. Sex work is work. Sex work for at risk youth individuals is different. Mm-hmm. I, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 I, I just wanted to make yeah. that clear <laughs> to your yeah, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Very um, much. 100% support, you know, sex work. There, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It should be decriminalized. Um, but also, you know, we, we should be looking into why youth or young adults are going into sex work. I mean, are we not providing living wages? Are we not providing health benefits? Are we not providing the things that people need to succeed in our society? It's as simple as that. Um, So 100% support it. Uh, Just so your listeners and everybody knows that, you know, it it should be decriminalized nationally. Okay, cool. That's what I was wondering if uh, you would support decriminalization nationally. Yes. Cool. Yeah. And especially because it disproportionately affects members of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. No, nope, absolutely. Yes. Especially trans people, especially trans women, mm-hmm. especially trans yep. women of color. Yep. Yeah. No. Nope. Just, just like pretty much everything that affects the LGBT community, it goes in that order. Yeah. No. No. I absolutely yeah. agree. That. That. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw, but like LGBTQ rights, and a lot of people say like, why? Why do you have them separate? Like LGBTQ. 
So a lot of people were confused. They're like, you only have three issues. No, I only have like three highlighted issues under my like actual page. And then like within my actual issues page, there's like maybe like 10, 15 things that I talk about. And then like off mm -hmm. to the side, there's Black Lives Matter and then LGBTQ. The reason they're yeah. separate, and a lot of people ask me this, um, it's because they're not brought up. Like it's like they're just overlooked within our society. And I think that these things matter. Um, it, it, they should mm -hmm. be talked about, uh, not saying that they're like, they need to be like the primary focus, but in today's climate in today's society within this country, it has to be. So that's just, just in case, like you want to add that in there. I mean, that's just one of those things. Yeah. That makes sense. Good stuff. Uh, All right. Is that, uh, did we, did we have anything else or is that, I think that's it. All right. Yeah. Did you want to talk about anything more Raleigh? Um, I think we got a pretty good overview of uh, who you are and what you're about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I actually really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I, we kind of talked about like how we're going to beat Quigley, which I mean, which, which was great. That was one of the primary things I wanted to focus on. And then like obviously platform yeah. and policy. So no, thank you guys. All right. Yeah. Well, well, real quick. Um, I'll just say thank you so much for coming on, uh, mm -hmm. for proving that you are in fact a real person. That's yeah, great. Thank you <laughs> for, um, uh, for making the dreams of the podcast come true. <laughs> it's <Yep. laughs> literally like the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, thank you for playing along with the bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no guys. I thought it was awesome. Uh, again, I, I can't wait to promote this and like, show you guys off because i think what you're doing is like pretty awesome believe it or not <laughs> you're not you're not detractors you're you're, you're awesome well, you're thank awesome. you for being such a good sport about it seriously yeah yeah i mean that honestly this is just an extension of what we were going for when we started this we just wanted to you know talk with our friends and wanted to talk with really cool people and get to experience stories from you know, people we might not. And this is just about the biggest story we've been introduced to. So thank you for, you know, sharing that with us. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think it's awesome. Again, what you're doing and I appreciate you allowing me to come on the show as well. Well, well, real quick before, before we, we call it a night, the mic's all yours. Why don't you take some time, tell people where they can find you. Uh, just give them a quick summary, what you're all about. Yeah. It's all yours. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So uh, you can find more about our campaign and information about our platform at RaleighBowmanForCongress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Raleigh Bowman and Facebook at Raleigh Bowman for us. Uh, you can learn more about our platform and what we stand for, things like Medicare for all, criminal justice reform, climate justice, and so on. Again, at RaleighBowmanForCongress.com. All right. Awesome. All right. All right, guys, thank you for listening. That was our interview with Raleigh Bowman. This was a fantastic opportunity for us. We really enjoyed getting to talk to Raleigh and shout out to him for proving to us that he's a real goddamn person. Uh, as always, thank you guys. Thank you to the Patreon subs. Uh, make sure you guys follow us on Twitter at Sunday underscore pod. You can go to patreon.com slash Sunday morning pod if you want to pay us money. Raleigh just a few minutes ago gave you his uh, his information, but you can follow him at Raleigh Bowman on Twitter and go to his website at Raleigh Bowman for Congress dot com. 
uh, for us. You can find our Discord, YouTube, Twitch, etc., all that shit at our website, which is sundaymorningpod.com. And as always, we'd love it if you guys could review us on iTunes, review us on Podchaser, and tell people about the pod. That's all I've got. So good morning, Sunday morning, and we will see you next week. Good morning, Sunday morning.